The Hidden Bible, Episode 3, The Scandal of God's Absence, and Some Strange Old Testament Laws. Welcome to The Hidden Bible, a podcast about the strange, the obscure, the confusing, do I dare to say it, the contradictory passages of the Christian Bible. I am your host, Deacon Harvey Santiago, a Catholic permanent deacon from the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and you are listening to the Thank you, thank you, thank you. Once again, we have a full house tonight in the studio. In fact, we have so many people that we have to send some away. Let me welcome you to The Hidden Bible, the podcast about the <clears throat> less quoted passages of the Bible. As always, I am your host, Deacon Harvey, coming to you fresh, relaxed, and ready after spending a couple of weeks lying under the Caribbean sun. I hope you are having a great second half of the summer. Before we continue today, there are a couple of announcements I would like to make. First, the Hidden Bible has a new website. The address is www.thehiddenbiblepodcast.com. In here, you will be able to subscribe to our RSS feed, download episodes, and look at the show notes. I invite you to take a look and leave a comment to let me know what do you think about the podcast. Also, I should let you know that during the month of September, I will be on a pilgrimage to the city of Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. So most likely, the next episode of The Hidden Bible will not come out until late October. Lastly, if you would like to join our Facebook page, just do a Facebook search for The Hidden Bible Podcast to keep informed of the latest events of The Hidden Bible, or just start a conversation. I also invite you to visit my personal page at www.deaconharvey.com or drop me a note at thehiddenbible at gmail.com or my personal email address, deaconharbay at yahoo.com. Okay, with all that out of the way, on with the show. In our last episode, we addressed the question of the inerrancy of the Bible and explain how the vast majority of believers and are comfortable with the idea that although not a perfect work, the Bible is indeed the inerrant, meaning without error, word of God. Christians understand that this inerrancy is maintained when the Bible presents those things which are necessary to believe in order to attain eternal salvation. 
However, inerrancy does not extend to issues such as names of places, dates, historical events, and the like, if these have no bearing in what God is intending to reveal. This is why believers are quite comfortable with stories about giants, talking animals, and even mythical monsters, since they are just the means by which the writers communicate a message, and not the message itself. Today we will try to answer another objection raised by non-believers. Why, if God is so powerful, his word is so difficult to understand? Wouldn't it make sense that an all-powerful God would have enough power to reveal his will in a perfect way? Why did God have to resort to a work such as the Bible, which, because of the many reasons we just explore, it is much less than perfect? If you have ever asked these questions to yourself, you are not alone. Many people have thought about this too. This is what theologian John F. Hogg, in his fantastic little book entitled what is God, how to think about the divine, calls the scandal of God's hiddenness. In short, one gets the impression that God is trying very hard to remain hidden. There is much we could say here, but since this is a podcast about the Bible, I will limit my comments in the area of God's hiddenness in the Bible. The key to get an answer to these questions is in the way we normally think about God. Most people think about God as a subject. What do I mean? They think of God as a person, as a father, as an image of Jesus of Nazareth, speaking, healing, preaching. For then, God is just a much bigger and powerful version of ourselves. But to understand God's attempts at communicating in the Bible, we have to think about God as an object, as a transcendent being beyond any of our understanding and anything we can experience in nature. In fact, even when we say that the Bible is the Word of God, we are explicitly speaking about God as a subject with a unique voice. But if we look at what is being written in the Bible, we see that the vast majority of what is said is said by people encountering not God as a subject, but God as an object. The mysterious, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely knowledgeable being. The being that Moses described as fire burning in a bush without consuming it. God is an object, if we could call God like this, unlike anything we can experience. What we read in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, are attempts of ancient people to describe an encounter with such a being. Of course, they will have trouble trying to express in words what cannot be expressed. 
I would venture to say that after 6,000 years, since the very first encounters with this divine transcendent being, we are still not equipped to express with words these types of encounters. And here I am reminded of the sci-fi movie Contact, in which the main character, after being transported to a new planet, is so overwhelmed by this experience that she declares, the Shuv has sent a poet, since she has no words to describing what she's experiencing. I included a link to a clip of this part of the movie, since it is one of my favorite scenes in this flick. In short, the reason why God is hidden in the Bible is because we are not equipped to find him. The Bible could be described in many ways, but for the sake of this discussion, we could say that the Bible is nothing more and nothing else than just a collection of narratives about different encounters with this being. Now, this description implies something very important. This being, in its divine hiddenness, has throughout history attempted to reveal himself to us. Christians have a word for these attempts. We call it divine revelation. And we believe this revelation, which started in the beginning of our history, still happens today. So, in our next podcast, we will take a look at this process of revelation. Now, I would like to move to a segment I like to call... Is that really in the Bible? Welcome to this new segment of The Hidden Bible, in which we will be taking a look at the most challenging, problematic, and downright outrageous passages of the Bible. To introduce this segment, I figured that a good place to start is with one of the strangest and more disturbing readings in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 11 and 12. Let me read it to you. When two men are fighting and the wife of one intervenes to save her husband from the blows of his opponent, if she stretches out her hand and sees the latter by the genitals, you shall chop off her hand. Show no mercy. As you can see, this is quite a statement. In fact, I imagine that the reaction of anyone who has never heard of this passage would be something like, is that really in the Bible? Well, I assure you, this passage is part of divine revelation. As you can imagine, this reading will shock and dismay anyone who has no experience reading or interpreting the Bible. On the other hand, this is the kind of passage which would send unprepared Christians squirming away or, at the least, twist them into a pretzel trying to come out with a way to justify these words. So I think the first thing we should do is acknowledge the feelings this sort of reading produces. In fact, I personally agree with these feelings. 
what kind of God would create such an outrageous law? Why would anyone think this sort of treatment of another human being is okay? Once we have gotten this out on the open, then we can spend some time with the text to see what is really going on in such an outrageous passage. Of course, throwing away the whole Bible because a text like this seems irrational. The least we can do is spend some time and see what could possibly be going on in the mind of the author of these words. Now, you could go online and try to see what others have said about this passage. I should tell you, much ink has been spilled over these two lines. I included a few good examples of the extent to which some people had struggled over this law. The most common line of attack I've seen has been looking at each word meaning to make sure we are really understanding this passage, or if there is some hidden message which makes them mean something different. Don't worry, I will not do that. Here in the Hidden Bible, we are proud of our motto, a text without context is just a pretext. So we will approach this passage in a different way. The first thing we will do is take a look at the book of Deuteronomy to gain a general idea of who the author was and what was his intention and to whom he was talking to. This Old Testament book was apparently composed by Moses himself, although it does not sound like other books attributed to this patriarch. It reads not as a book, but as a series of speeches to the people of Israel given just before they were to cross the Jordan River and begin their conquest of the Promised Land. It is a kind of farewell last will and testament. His intention for this book was to ensure that when he was gone, Israel would maintain the covenant received in Mount Sinai, and that they will continue to make justice the fundamental objective of their life. In fact, this is clearly stated in the chapter 16. Let me read it. To you. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 18 to 20. In all the communities which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall appoint judges and officials throughout your tribes to administer true justice for the people. You must not distort justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes even of the wise and twists the words even of the just. Justice, justice alone shall you pursue, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. To accomplish this, he gives them a new law. Deuteronomy means second law. 
a new law composed of parts of the Sinai law received in Exodus and Leviticus, and some new laws to follow. One very important point in our discussion is the fact that if we compare the laws which were recorded in the book of Exodus with the new laws Moses is giving in the book of Deuteronomy, we find that the laws in the book of Deuteronomy are more developed. Take, for example, the law given on Exodus chapter 21st, verses 2 and 3, and compare it with its parallel in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 to 15. Let me read them to you. Exodus chapter 21st, verse 2 and 3. When you purchase a Hebrew slave, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall live as a free person without any payment. If he comes into service alone, he shall live alone. If he comes with a wife, his wife shall live with him. Now, let me read you the other passage. Deuteronomy chapter 21st, verse 12 to 15. If your king, a Hebrew man or woman, sells himself or herself to you, he or she is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year you shall release him or her as a free person. When you release a male from your service as a free person, you shall not send him away empty-handed, but shall weight him down with gifts from your flock and threshing floor and wine presses. As the Lord your God has blessed you, so you shall give to him. For remember that you too were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I am giving you this command today. As you can see, the Deuteronomy law is more specific and provides greater explanation. Now, in addition to these revised and expanded laws, there are a number of laws which have no corresponding law in the book of Exodus or Leviticus. The law which is the object of our attention today is one of these. Let's keep this idea of law development in mind and let's take a look at our passage again. Once the shock of such a barbaric law has passed, you have to admit that this law is quite strange. A woman will lose a hand only if the following criteria is met. If her husband is fighting with another man and if his life is in danger and his wife intervenes and attacks the attacker, but not only by grabbing him by the genital, but in such a way that the attacker's life is in danger too. Now, you might be wondering, 
where in the text says that the attacker's life is in danger by the actions of this woman. You might not know this, but trust me, the Hebrew words used in this passage imply that the woman's attack has done so much damage to the attacker that he might die as a result of his wounds. Now, that is quite a specific law. And to make matters worse, we end with these three strange last words. Show no mercy. Well, as it turns out, these three words are like an arrow pointing to another passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. Show no mercy, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for for food. Many of you will recognize these words. They are also known as Talion's law, or the law of equal retribution. Now, this law was the basis of many ancient legal codes. The oldest which have survived is the famous Hammurabi's Code, named after the Babylonian king which collected created and implemented it. You might not be aware of this, but in this ancient code, there is a very familiar law. Let me read it for you. This is from the Hammurabi Code. If a woman should crush a man's testicle during a quarrel, they shall cut off one of her fingers and even if the physician should bandage it, but the second testicle then becomes infected along with it, or if she should crush the second testicle during the quarrel, they shall gouge out both her eyes. Notice how the law in Deuteronomy is much more specific than the general principle exposed in the Hammurabi law. In fact, what we are seeing in this passage is God's attempt at moving the people of Israel from the brutal codes followed by their neighbors into a more equitable and just code. How does he accomplish this? First, by narrowing the scope of the crime. What in the Hammurabi Code is called a quarrel in the Deuteronomy is changed to a much more specific case, which a number of ifs, ands, and ors. And second, by applying a less disabling punishment. In a society in which any disability would seriously jeopardize your chances of survival, losing a limb was much more preferable than losing your eyesight. Now we have traced the development of this law from the Babylonian code to the Deuteronomy code by using the key Moses left us. However, the story does not end there. In fact, we can show that this law continued developing to the extent that around the year 1 
the year which saw the birth of Jesus the Christ, a Jewish philosopher called Philo of Alexandria wrote about this law. And what took Deuteronomy 45 words took Philo 491. Don't worry, I will not read this in our show. But I place a copy of Philo's words in the show notes so you see how much this law developed in almost a thousand years. Before we finish today, there is one more issue I would like to discuss. I know this has been a long episode, but this is a very important point. Some of you might be thinking that all the explanations so far are just a veiled attempt at disregarding the real issue. God ordering the mutilation of a woman as punishment for sin. I could create a whole new podcast discussing this point, but I would rather provide you with a quote taken from Rabbi Mark Angel's book entitled Maimonides, Spinoza, and Us, Toward an Intellectually Vibrant Judaism. In this work, Rabbi Angel describes how the 11th century Jewish philosopher Maimonides explains how the Jewish people viewed this cutting of a hand since the times of Moses. Here is the quote. Rambam, also known as Maimonides, lists five categories of oral Torah. The first category, about which there never arose any controversies, consists of explanations of words and laws that might have also have been derived through the use of hermeneutic or biblical interpretation principles. When the Torah states that her hand shall be cut off, this was always understood to mean that she had to pay damages, not that her hand was actually cut off. So what is the correct way of interpreting this law? It is obvious that what we are reading is not an absolute law like thou shalt not kill, but a step, a snapshot, if you may, in God's long process of making justice and justice alone the center of Jewish life. Of course, one might think, wow, but cutting the hand of a woman? But we must remember that just four years past the point this book is describing, the people of Israel had escaped a brutal slavery, and now they were entering a land whose inhabitants were still practicing human sacrifices with their own children. God's plan for the chosen people was to move them away from these ancient codes, which ignore human dignity into a more equitable law system. A long process which today might look strange and even alien to us, but that in these times and place was the only laws the people of Israel could handle. To judge these laws with the standards we have today is not only unfair, 
but it betrays our own lack of sensitivity towards the times and cultures in which these events happened, as well as ignoring the situation of those who were receiving these laws. But most important, it refuses to acknowledge the historical reality, which is God's long-term desire for a just world. I hope this helps. Well, friends, that is all. I hope that today's podcast was useful to you. I am sorry it took me so long to produce it, but August, September, and October were very busy for me. Next time, since we will be in the season of Advent, we will talk about Revelation, and we will take a trip to the Bible Mystery Laboratory, in which we will examine one of the most well-known mysteries of the New Testament, the Star of Bethlehem. Until then, and through the intercession of St. Aphron the Syrian, deacon and doctor of the Church, may the blessings of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. And remember, Viva Cristo Rey!